Did you know that in the 13th and early 14th centuries, over 1,300 oak trees were used to erect the interior structure of the Cathedral of Notre Dame? In 1345, the magnificent structure was dedicated, marking the very heart of the center of Paris. 459 years later, Napoleon was coronated inside this Gothic structure, four years into the 19th century. And on Monday of this week, the world watched helplessly as Notre Dame's roof, spire, and portions of its upper walls were destroyed in flames. The sight was sickly to behold for all who watched. Something indelibly permanent, something etched into the skyline of the City of Lights was being taken away. What was it, really? French historian Camille Pascal fought tears as he watched the burning and put it this way, The Cathedral of Notre Dame is impossible to separate from France and from French national identity. It means so much. It is fundamental to France and to French values. It has endured. We have never seen it like this. Never. French or non-French, Christian or non-Christian, it was a sickly burn. And if like 12 million people every year you've ever toured it, if you've ever heard its magnificent organ of 7,800 pipes, if you've ever looked with your own eyes at its rosace, stained glass windows, or seen the crown of thorns that Christ himself is said to have worn, well, then this was a tough one. We all watched on our smartphones as the main spire tipped, slowly at first, and then fell, subsumed and charred in flames. For Christians just beginning Holy Week, it was perhaps an even greater violation. But as you'll hear Henry Olson and James Astle describe in today's conversation about the fascinating, complex rise of European populism in recent years, there's also something inextricably cultural-religious bound up in French national memory. That's true in Germany and other places, too. And that mixing together, alongside and at times in tension with the rise of the EU and globalization, has been an ingredient as the populist cry makes itself increasingly known in places like Hungary, Italy, England, Greece, Spain, and even France. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded prior to the Cathedral of Notre Dame's fire. And it's a good one because the two individuals driving it are at the top of their game. Instead of pre-prepared questions, you're about to hear two brilliant minds with broad historical and geopolitical reach going at it, discussing populism, immigration, and European nationalism. James Astle is the Washington bureau chief and Lexington columnist at The Economist. He's fluent in four languages, and he speaks English with a proper British accent. In addition to writing regular columns at The Economist, James has also published an award-winning book about India and cricket. Henry Olson is now a daily columnist at The Washington Post, and last November he spoke with us at Faith Angle about the midterm elections. For all his expertise, Henry has always remained a true student of democratic elections, and he's focused recently on how America's political order is being upended by populist challenges on both left and right. Looking to Europe, he's carefully surveyed how vastly different parties from country to country have responded to globalization, the EU, 2008's great financial crisis, Muslim immigration, corruption, and important aspects of national pride versus Europeanness. You can read James in The Economist every week, and in the show notes, you can find a link to Henry's piece in Unheard, The Center-Left Will Never Defeat European Populism If It Fails to First Understand It. Before any leader can help make life better for people, 
she or he must first understand the integrity and substance of the problem. And this fascinating, wide-ranging conversation can help all of us begin to get our arms a little bit better around the problem and opportunity that is European populism. Like in America, the strands of populism are economic, cultural, and consequential, and we'll be paying better attention as Europe's upcoming elections unfold. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. So today on the podcast, we're very privileged to be joined by James Astle, uh, the Washington Bureau Chief and Lexington Columnist at The Economist, who will be conversing with Henry Olson, a senior fellow at the Ethics Public Policy Center, who is particularly good at seeing a bit about populism around the corner and sometimes before the rest of us do. Thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me very much, Josh. Henry, good to see you, naturally. Yeah, good always. to see you, James. Why don't we try to kind of situate the moment a little bit? There's been this, I think, slightly tedious way of counting off the years in terms of European populism. 2016 was a, a good year for the populists. They had Brexit. They appeared to register electorally in the polling numbers of, of most Western European countries, perhaps for the first time in some Scandinavian countries. 2017, they dipped a bit. 2018, they up. I mean, this is, this is a, it's crazy, really. Yeah. What we've seen is a secular growth of this kind of politics right. on the left, and on the right, more notoriously on the right, but also on the left in Europe, over the last 40 years. And now they are registering electorally, making coalitions, making governments. Yes. And we have, in a moment of particular disaffection with the European Union, which is a Brit, I guess I see, you know, in all its red-hot extent, a European Parliament election approaching in which populists are going to score significant gains, it seems. So that's sort of the way that I look at this as a very significant moment in an, in an, an historic story of growth. Yeah. Where are you on this? I'm very similar to that. I think this has been uh, in a long trending movement. I think it had particular triggers uh, in uh, the 2008. You know, we call it the Great Recession. I think it's called the Great Financial Crisis or uh, in other countries or something like that, uh, Great Financial Crash. But yeah, I think we've had 20 years or more of rapid cultural change than in most of these countries, the sort of person who is attracted to blue-collar or right-wing populism is, if not culturally conservative, at least not culturally liberal. And they find themselves discomfited by that. They tend to be people who are, if not losers, definitely not winners in the economic change, and they find themselves discomfited by that. And they have been largely abandoned by their those that voted for traditional parties on the center left. And they're very open to new appeals and enter the right-wing populist or the blue-collar populist. And then on the left, I think you've had – there's always been this core of irredentists who never quite accommodated the – 
apparent victory of neoliberalism between the mid-'80s and the uh, cementing of that with the third way in the late 1990s. And they're using the last uh, 15 years to say, see, we were right, and they're building popular support with kind of a left-wing populism. And uh, they're also writing uh, the new identitarian politics in some countries, and in countries like Holland, you have now a Turkish minority party. I think it's Turkish, maybe more Moluccan, but it's, you know, uh, an immigrant party that's now in parliament and gaining. That's a first in continental Europe, and it's very left-wing. And so you have between them a growth of populism that's responding to long-term trends that none of the established parties, center-right, center-left, or the centrist liberals, have a clue to really how to adapt to. And um, you know, part of the trouble, you know, the, the tragedy of Britain is a party in the conservatives that actually tried to address the challenge and is tearing itself apart in doing so because it hasn't been able to square the circle. Let's talk about Britain briefly, not, not least because it seems, it seems a significant moment in Britain in that you have essentially the the left and the right of populism, both right now, um, although they, they're not acknowledging it, um, attempting to organize themselves um, to, to, to ensure that Brexit happens. The, the Labour Party, though broadly speaking uh, Europhile, has a leader who is of precisely that old school, uh, unreformed left, who never accepted the neoliberal consensus mm -hmm. and has been quietly Europhobic and and indeed a Brexiteer for many years, who is now in a position to to bail out a Conservative Party, which is in the process of being captured. It seems it seems by right wing populists to ensure that Brexit happens. It's an ill moment that bodes nothing good for for the UK or or for the politics well, of, I think of either you know, party. And I think it, you know that I disagree moment. with you about Brexit. You disagree with me on on Brexit. We're very happy to debate that one. Maybe we ought to. We ought to not not to get stuck down that 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 rabbit hole, but um, in, in this odd case, um, Jeremy Corbyn is representing the traditional working class base of the Labour Party. That while Labour voters, according to polls, were remain, um, it was uh, just as Tory voters were leave by like a fifty five or or sixty uh, thirty five margin or sixty five thirty five margin. Labor voters were similarly split. They were Remain, but with a huge sure. leave contingent. And that leave contingent was very much in the old white working class community. So it's a very ironic sense that a person who does not represent the old white working class is going to potentially bail out the Tory party on behalf of the white working class. Of I, the, Labor yeah, party. The, the irony, of course, is that, is that in those constituencies, many people those labor, traditional labor constituencies, many people voted for Brexit because they wanted control of their borders, which is not the part of the Brexit arm argument that Jeremy Corbyn is interested in. He always thought that the European Union, contrary to, the, to its demonizing in the UK more broadly, is an evil capitalist project. And therefore, Brexit is the, uh, the best means to take the British economy on a hard drive to the left. You know, God help it. Yeah, which would be interesting because the one thing that, and again, you've got the irony is that to talk about Brexit for a second, 
the complaint within the European research group, the hard right Brexiteers, has been, all you've given us is control of the borders. You haven't taken our economy out of Europe. So if what Corbyn does is essentially do that, which is say, you can have the deal, you can have my support, but you have to actually work on my priority, which is to extricate us more from Europe, he'll be doing Jacob Rees-Mogg's work for him. And precisely in order to give him the power to introduce socialism if he were to come to power, sure. but it would be a double irony in that sense. Sure, though, though the, the Brexit that he would cooperate with Theresa May on will, would be a far softer Brexit than... European Research Group would, would, would I mean, presumably, they, they yes. wouldn't consider it to be Brexit at all if we're to believe their public pronouncements. It would certainly be a much softer Brexit than the deal that Theresa May has negotiated, which apparently is not Brexit either. So <laughs> we, we, we all await for a, a feasible Brexit, a judge to be a genuine Brexit by um, Britain's traditional Brexiteers to come into, into view. Perhaps it never will. Let's, let's just extend this point about cooperation between populists with different sorts of priority, because it seems to me to be particularly apposite right now with a view to the European Parliament election. Mm -hmm. We've already seen populists on the right, led by uh, Matteo Salvini, Salvini in, in Italy, to come to terms in some way. I think the, there is a lot of skepticism in Europe about how successful that alliance could be. It tends to illustrate what different priorities European populists have, even though mm -hmm. there's, an, there's an abiding Euroscepticism, which they tend to have in common. I think that um, they also, the prospect of a rather um, xenophobic um, uh, populist right-wing alliance with some rough edges to it tends to, to scare mainstream European voters. So, there's a sense in which it could be a, a self-defeating project. But nonetheless, it's interesting that it's happening. It, it certainly mm -hmm. speaks to a confidence amongst those populists that they that they now really register, that they come into the European Parliament elections and then perhaps the European Parliament in sufficient numbers to form a significant block of their own. Uh, that seems to be a well-founded expectation that there is a, an assumption that they could take something like a quarter of of the vote, twenty percent mm -hmm. to twenty-five percent of the vote in the in the in, in the coming election. You're talking about left and right combined. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Though the the alliance building has been mostly on the on the right, right. But, but sure. Um, uh, and of course, Euroscepticism, as previously discussed with the Corbyn May example, is something that that the left and the right do mm -hmm. do have in common, and therefore is especially relevant right. when we're talking about a, a European elections. What's your What's your own view of that. Do you, and this is, of course, you know, for an American audience, has been the project of, of Steve Bannon uh, over the last <laughs> year or so to try to found an alliance between these uh, European right-wing populists. Do you think that that's a, a well-conceived project? I don't know what Steve's role in that has been. You know, Steve uh, is somebody who is uh, excellent at self-promotion, and I'm uh, not convinced that he has uh, the requisite knowledge of European politics to have delivered, but it's in the European anti-populist you know, party's interest to 
form some sort of alliance to gain power or at least to gain attention for themselves. I think, you know, that it's quite clear from all the national polls, uh, which I follow pretty religiously, that right-wing populism is going to gain significant strength in virtually every European country compared to five years ago. Left-wing populism and centrist populism, you know, like uh, um, Babich's Anno Party uh, or M5S um, will do very well. And I think it's pretty clear that the um, EPP and S&D, the Christian Democrat, Social Democratic Alliance will not form a majority. And that's one thing that would not surprise me at all in the last, since you and Britain are now going to have to hold European elections, I understand. You know, in the last European elections, UKIP won with 29% of the vote. I don't know if it'll be a UKIP or a Brexit party, as has been promised, but I'd be shocked if it were only 29% of the vote. I would expect the Tory vote to collapse. I would expect the Labour vote to go down. I would expect Britain to vote 35 to 40% for hard leave parties because that's the safe way for people to show parliament that leave means leave, which I think will be something that the EU would have to take into account, you know, with respect to do we really want these people in. I mean, you're right. Your expectation is absolutely right, though, though how serious that signal would be understood to be would depend on the interests of, of, of the, the mainstream political party in question. For the Conservative Party, the, the specter of being split by Brexit and losing those voters to a a UKIP or a, or a future Brexiteer party is, of course, the spectre that drove them into this disaster that Brexit has become in the first place. Yeah. For the Labour Party, it's potentially a different calculation, though. Though, though, with you know, w- with that same question to be answered, I suppose the key point, I, I guess, more broadly, therefore, is that because European the European Parliament is remote, not not well understood by no means felt by Brits to be any kind of custodian of their democracy or representative of their interests. It's never been taken seriously. These have always been extraordinarily low turnout elections, and they have purely functioned as a potential protest vote for for Eurosceptics. Now you have a far better, unprecedentedly large, well-organized and angry Eurosceptic electorate who will therefore, as you say, use these these elections to, to make a big protest vote. But it still is a protest vote. Oh, yes, it will be a protest vote. But I was thinking more of its effect on the EU as opposed to the effect on domestic British politics, which is what's quite clear is that I think what's going to happen in Europe is the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats are going to invite the liberals into their club. And they will do what I call the ins have been doing for the last decade over Europe, which is that they will try and form a coalition of all of the in parties and keep all of the populist parties out and give them basically try and ignore the rising sentiment. That's always the last throw of the dice. I can think of virtually no country where that has worked. Italy tried it, and it led to the revolt of the uh, populace that's created the Salvini um, it, Di Matteo. It confirms voters' suspicions that, that there's no ideological choice in the center. That's right. That, that the establishment um, will club together to defend their interests, and that the only true political choice, therefore, is between radicals of both left and right. Right. 
but nevertheless, even having seen that, that's the choice that the European elites are going to are, are going to make in Strasbourg or in Brussels or in Berlin, wherever the real decisions are made in the EU. And that's going to mean over the next five years, um, I think you will continue to see um, populist voices on the left and right rise, uh, particularly if there's an economic downturn. So we've got one of the things I think that's underappreciated is you've got all this happening at a time when most of Europe is growing, albeit relatively slowly, but it is still relatively growing. Imagine what happens if you're in a recession. We also have rather low immigration. I would uh, just add to point. To, to really, really to endorse that point. Yeah. Um, since the, the the crisis, when the we had the wave of of Syrian and uh, Iraqi immigration. I mean, you are still now, de- I think, less than half of what it was then. Yeah. I mean, you haven't you have expelled to- all of those people, so you're so you're dealing with the integration of them. But yes, the- that's that's true. But if unease with immigration is a, is about a sense of lacking control over mm-hmm. borders, literally, but but government policy on a very emotive issue, you you would expect logically some of that disaffection to dissipate, and it hasn't. It's still driving politics, especially on left and the right at the extremes yeah. ac- across Europe. Let's talk a little bit more about Yeah, how, that's why how, I think that this is, what we're talking about is, you know, some of this is reaction to actual things, but some of this is the things being triggered for much deeper senses of lack of control over your life and a lack of place in your society. That for large numbers of people, they simply have been displaced from either uh, a comfortable, uh, a sense of meaning or a sense of status or a sense of comfort. And suddenly these, the, the, for migration, it's, you know, a sudden sense of why are you favor, you know, I believe it, a lot of it is, why are you favoring these newcomers over us when we are already having a hard time? But And then you've got the different cultural questions that come into play where, you know, there's a Pew Research study that shows that even in Europe, which is not terribly actively religious, people who have identity as Christians, even if they don't go to church, tend to be less favorable towards large-scale Muslim immigration than people who actively have no sense of Christian identity. So you've got this latent sense of cultural Christianity that comes into conflict with a question of is you know of not of a large scale non Christian migration, so in that sense, the immediate the, the, cessation or removal doesn't address the long term question. There, there are big disparities, though. If and if we're really talking now about the immigration crisis of of twenty fifteen sixteen. There are big disparities still, country to country. So you know, of course, the initially very welcoming popular response in Germany turned somewhat sour, but still it's possible to exaggerate the extent to which majority opinion shifted. It was never the same as majority opinion in Hungary and Poland, for example, which were far more hostile from the get-go. I don't know if there is a religious, cultural, conservative element to that. It would seem to be perfectly logical, bearing in mind the difference the contrast between the, those two countries on that on that question, but it's also about a feeling of, of broader economic well-being, and I think yeah. and I think of of being well represented. Germans, by and large, feel well represented by their local government, by their by their federal government and its structure, and indeed by European institutions. And 
any other people in Europe feels much less well yeah. represented. And that was that was a big part of this. And that, much as a feeling of why are you favoring those immigrants when we ourselves are having a, a hard or harder than we would like time already is is an issue here. I think there's another, you know, extraordinarily important question. We, we think this is a bad thing. Why are you not listening to us? Most everybody we know think this is a bad thing. Why are you not listening to us? So there the, was a clear democratic problem yeah. in uh, large-scale immigration that Europe had been seeing since long before the crisis. The question I wanted us to um, address a little bit more is concerns coalitions and the effect of populist parties sort of on them, but also that the, the the paradox here, which is that they are both a dampener on the rise of populist parties because it takes time to to accrue power, but also you can get a very early foothold with just a a, a small share of the of the vote. That's something that looks, of course, very different from American politics, and I think would be quite hard for some American listeners to to get a clear sense of. You, you referred to the sort of, I think the last throw of the dice, I think was your was your phrase, yeah. when centre-left, centre-right parties club together to, to shut out populists of the left or the right. Indeed, it never seems to go well. But we've also seen examples where to avoid precisely that eventuality, centre-right parties in particular mm. have formed alliances with populists and been regrettably changed by them. They've Instead of taking up their 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 urgent sort of call for radicalism and, and reform, which I think is the correct mainstream response to populism, to, to understand the sort of creed de corps for, for a better representation and mm-hmm. a more radical politics. They've lazily taken up the policies, regrettably in some cases, especially on immigration, and the politics of, of populists. So there isn't really a perfect way of doing this. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, to that dilemma, if you like, for for the centre-left and the centre-right when it comes to coalition building in Europe? It's a huge dilemma. I tend to be um, perhaps less skeptical of the problems of adopting some of the policies. We're going to have Danish elections this year where the centre-left is going to finish first, and they will have done so by uh, basically co-opting the migration policies of the populists breaking its long-term 30- or 40-year alliance with the radical, you know, radical Venstras, the Radicala Venstra is the Danish name. It's social liberals is how it's translated in the English. Because they tried alternatives for the preceding 20 years, and they hadn't been able to shake the, uh, the blue coalition very frequently. I think there is a couple of things. You know, first, that the nature of the populist party matters a lot that in Norway, the Populist Party also has strong roots in classical libertarian economics. So that allows for a more fruitful, cohesive coalition, that there are things beyond immigration that the Solberg government has been able to achieve during its six years in power. The second, you know, migration matters. That's to some degree limiting migration is genuinely the response of listening that the people want. It's not a symbolic matter. Let me interject briefly because I, we shouldn't give the impression that that uh, that a more restrictionist immigration policy is the silver bullet here. And and the the, the example because you can have a more restrictionist 
policy and it doesn't seem to change the politics. It doesn't seem to slow down the rise of some of these populist parties. And with and the example I, I must say I had in mind in terms of being sort of corrupted almost by an alliance with populists is really the Hungarian one where you had a sort of pretty plain vanilla center-right party that embraced not only the restrictionism of its populist partner, but uh, a corrosive view of the rule of law more broadly, I think, deeply cynical an opportunistic turn. And it's that broader shift that I worry about more than just where you stand on border control. Yeah, I think the question there is how much the Hungarian uh, example is spreadable outside of the Hungarian circumstance. I've been to Hungary a couple of times. It's, it is a troubling circumstance where the government seems to want to, by stealth, not suppress active electioneering. This isn't a place where journalists need to worry about being murdered or political opponents need to worry about ending up in jail, but rather have the space smothered by having newspapers bought up and slowly having independent space removed. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that's very troublesome. The question is whether or not that's something that is broadly the aim of right-wing populists or whether that's a Hungarian you know, a sign of a weak democracy. And I think the jury's out. I think in most countries in Western Europe, we haven't seen that, nor have we seen really an indication that it's something that they really aspire to. But we don't know that yet. Henry, remind us of the large contours of the Orban sort of moment. Where, where, is, where is it? Where, where, where I mean, one of the things that people tend to forget about Orban is how widely discredited the incumbent center-left government was uh, when Orban took power in 2010. Fidesz, the right-wing conservative party that he runs, came to power after eight years of rule by the Hungarian Socialist Party in which they presided over a massive recession and in which the prime minister had been caught on tape saying that they just made up economic numbers and that they were lying to the Hungarian people and that they had nothing to run on. And it caused massive protests in the square, and they were completely discredited. And they've never regained credibility. In fact, the, uh, one of the reasons why Fidesz continues to have supermajorities is that even opposition liberals don't want to run on the same platform consistently with the, with, with the socialists because they don't want to have the taint from that rule. So that's a, a clear factor. And then you've got the fact that um, one of the opposition parties is uh, arguably to Fidesz's right on questions of nationalism. And again, and that's a question of what came first, the nationalism that Orban responded to, or did he create, you know, is the thing, is it part of the Hungarian soul that he's co-opting and avoiding making worse? Or is it something that because he had that turn, he kind of created the alternative? I don't know enough about Hungary to know, but, you know, the fact is, going back to the first free election in 1990, Joseph Antal ran on a not dissimilar combination of Hungarian nationalism and free market economics when the Hungarian Christian Democratic Party won. I believe that was what they were called in the 1990 election. The movement away from the rule of law and particularly the kind of boss-like, treating Hungary like, a, you know, a boss of an American city would treat the city is very troublesome, but it's not clear to me that that is something that all right-wing populist movements throughout Europe are 
I, aspiring. So, so it's an extreme example in extreme circumstances, as you've well outlined. But there is a gene in populism where you lambast the establishment, and that quickly becomes an attack, an attack on the institutions of governance more more broadly, the judiciary in particular. If you don't like the result, election authorities. We see this again and again rhetorically. We see it in this country, America, from the lips of of the president actually on a daily basis, forget just on his during his 2016 election campaign. We've seen it in the, the Brexit shambles in the UK, where judges and now parliament who are seen to be barriers to the popular will, however you choose to define that, of course, in your interests always, have become lambasted on the pages of, of newspapers. It's deeply troubling and absolutely, I think, in the DNA of populism. I don't think you need special circumstances to, to be able to identify that. What I would also say, though, is that you also don't need special circumstances to recognize an elite that is trying to, I think it is quite clear in the Brexit circumstance that Parliament, the majority in Parliament does not want to implement the referendum in good faith. And that is the source of the problem. I think that really, that, that mischaracterizes both the problem and the role of parliament in this. The problem is that you have a direct clash between direct democracy, of which Britain has very little experience, yes. and though for which enormous claims were made by utopians on both sides, and representative democracy, which is actually British democracy. It's, it's what our institutions are geared around. And it turns out that the, the promises that were made by the victorious side uh, in head of the, the referendum, completely unrealizable. Unreal, They're based on illogical and actually dishonest um, view of, of of reality. And Parliament has been landed this abysmal task of trying to deliver something that it is that is both coherent with the referendum result and not supremely damaging to the national interest. And that is actually an impossible task, but there, there, are, there are degrees to, of, of damage uh, which Parliament is prepared to su submit to. And unfortunately, as this torturous process pans out, but both sides are becoming more radicalized on the fringes, and, and therefore the dilemma, torturous and failing as it is, is also being mischaracterized by, by both sides. So I, I think you're quite wrong to actually embrace the radicalized rhetoric of the, a Brexiteer camp, which now it's very close to describing Parliament as an enemy of the people, as its oh. as its newspapers have or, have already characterised the judiciary as the eni enemy of the people. These are our British democratic institutions, and they are not enemies of the people. This is how democracy functions in in the country. So I, I think I think you risk teetering on the the verge of a dangerous point. I think we'll have to disagree on that. Yes. Now we can certainly agree on the failure of European institutions more more broadly, and the role that that's played in inciting this populist right. vote. I, I want, if I may, Henry, just, just to interject a little bit of a sense of proportion into the conversation. It, it, would be, it would be easy to think from this conversation that European politics have, have just been overrun by, by populist parties. And that's emphatically not the case. Oh, no. Th though they will do unprecedentedly well, probably in these European mm -hmm. Parliament elections, they will get no more than 25% of the vote. The centre-right, the centre-left will have a far bigger slab of the parliament 
the European Union is historically popular right now in Europe. According to opinion polling, two-thirds of Europeans are, are attached to the European Union as never before. In Britain, just most obviously, we are seeing the first organized Europhile movement of my lifetime uh, <laughs> a little late in the day, some might argue. Yes. So this is both, I think, a, a kind of a correct calibration of, of the political moment or problem, mm -hmm. as I would say, but also it does outline, I think, the potential for the European mainstream to, to respond sensibly to, to the questions being asked of them from the fringes of their, their politics. European reform could clearly be a big part of the solution yeah. to return a sense of decent representation to electorates across the continent. And I think there's an awful lot that you can do short of tearing the house down as, for example, the Brexiteers in in uh, in the UK are trying to do vis-a-vis um, -vis Britain's role in in the European Union. What's your sort of broader view on that? I think that's a very. I think there's a real question that Europe has to ask itself. There are a large number of people who do not feel politically European. They feel politically identified with their nation state. However, the way that the European Union has been constructed their ability to make national domestic decisions is severely limited by the European Union in many ways. In what ways? Well, you can't reflate uh, with respect if you're in the Eurozone. You can't reflate your currency. You can't, um, you have to get your national budget approved by the European Commission. You have to negotiate as the Italian populists have been learning or you can be sanctioned. And that makes it difficult to pursue economic policies that don't receive sanction from um, from the European Commission. And that, too, is a decision that's always— Because it tends to be your um, economic basket cases that voice this frustration. Um, and that's—in the United States, when we have regions of the country that are depressed uh, or uh, we tend to not have this— question as much because we have automatic stabilizers that flow money into the depressed regions through, you know, if you're receiving, if you have a higher number of unemployed, you get more unemployment insurance, you have higher food stamps, you get more medical insurance. So, uh, and... Um, Which is a fair description of the policies that Southern Europe enjoys, for example. Do they flow to the individuals or the governments? My point is that in America... They, they, they've flow hugely to depressed post-industrialized quarters of They flow of to the governments. My point is that you don't have an individual who receives something from the EU. You, so is your point that he doesn't benefit or that he doesn't realize it's come via the European There's not Union? a sense of Europeanness that comes from a European-wide policy. What you have, I certainly agree with that, yeah. So... I, th I mean, I think that there is a sense of Europeanness, but uh, there's certainly disagreement about the degree to which Europeans want to be represented by a European government, broadly speaking. Yeah. And it's there doesn't need to be a fight over European identity versus national identity to the extent that the fringe would like us to have that fight. I'm not convinced it's a fringe. I think it's quite clear it's not a fringe. It's just, it, may not, it may not be a majority, but it's not a fringe. Well, when two-thirds of, of Europeans are feeling strongly pro- the European Union that would suggest that there's a decent majority in in favour, but I, I won't. Uh, I I, I, let's 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 not look for reasons to disagree because I I think that um, 
But, we, 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 there's plenty that we can agree on in terms of what Europe can do to return a sense of appropriate self-government, if you like, by national governments to disaffected Europeans, short of kind of throwing it up its hands in, in despair about the entire project. No, but I think that you have to define what the project is. It either has to be greater integration, which is to say a greater nationalization of, uh, of your program of your programs so that there's more of a European-wide social welfare system. That's less national identity in terms of that, more European-wide taxation, and more European-wide democracy. I mean, one of the things that strikes me when I read about it is that all your parliament sits in Strasbourg, but all the decisions get made in Brussels. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that that only Macron amongst European leaders has been arguing forcefully for for greater political integration, and it's been a, a noble but but thoroughly unsuccessful argument on his part, shows I think, how far we are from talking about greater integration right. at, at this this point. But there is an awful lot we can do, I think, in Europe to maintain something not very dissimilar from the status quo in terms of economic integration and benefit, but improve the mess of European political representation where nobody knows where the decisions are made, nobody knows what the European Parliament is for, everybody has a just sense that their own parliaments are subordinate in too much um, policymaking right, but to, but to then, But then I guess the question is, what would that mean? I mean? Would that mean that somebody has to give up, for that to take place, that either means power moves from Brussels to Strasbourg, or it means that power moves from the EU back to the countries. I think it, it could mean some of both, actually. Uh, and uh, the, the principle of involving national parliaments more in European decision-making, something that's been kicked around for, for a very long time under the, you know, the, the banner heading of sub- subsidiarity. And it's only now, I think, starting to be considered a bit more seriously. So, you know, we don't need to turn this into a, into a, into yeah. a, into a hopeful conversation about you know, European James, reform if you don't I, want to. But I, 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 but I, I think, I think yeah, that yeah. There, there, there is plenty that can be done short of doomsday scenarios for the European project? No, I don't think it needs to be a doomsday scenario. But, you know, if this were, if Europe were a genuine democracy, then you would see genuine political competition going on. And that's what you almost never see. You don't see the sort of regional uh, coalitions forming if the questions were regional in nature, or you don't see a sort of genuine competition between parties. Instead, what you have had uh, up until now is a cozy duopoly of center-left and center-right who generally take their orders from Paris and Berlin, and all of the smaller countries fall in line. And that's neither democratic nor particularly helpful for forming a European identity. And that has to change. But there's not really a reason for Paris or Berlin to want it to change. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think the, 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 an important kind of qualifier is, is to say that despite the apparent insanity of Europe's political modus and institutions, there is still strong support for Europe because, one, it is seen to have a higher purpose, as it indeed it does have. These are institutions that were formed to ensure that Europe never again returned to fighting devastating wars amongst itself, which is a a memory that's faded too fast, some might argue. So that's sort of the conundrum. How do you loosen Europe as a political project whilst retaining that sense of a higher 
ideal. That's one thing. But the other thing that retains a good degree of support for the European project is that it's delivered tremendous economic benefits for most of its participants. And that is, both things actually are the advantages that Europe still has when it comes to reforming itself. It yeah, still has good goodwill and a good argument for itself. Yeah, and that's why you had the conundrum of Greece, where people wanted to be, polls consistently showed they wanted to uh, avoid the strictures of the bailout agreement, and they wanted to stay part of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Josh? Just one quick thing. I, You know, you sometimes we'll look at the, the United States pie chart uh, of the population and, and note that there's a very large contingent here that is that is religious. I think the latest Pew data suggests it's a little bit north of 70% identify as Christian. And there's another, I think it's 5.9% that are non-Christian faiths. And then there's a large spike in the, in the nuns, certainly in the last couple of, of decades, 22.8% uh, say the last stats. It's a little bit different picture in Europe. And therefore, I was talking with one of your colleagues the other day who was describing how, you know, they're sort of a looking back at the United States and saying, gosh, those crazy Christians, they, they're the ones who, who elected Donald Trump, you know, and, and we are looking at Islam on, on the rise here and, and pushing uh, concern against that sort of religious fervor because it's different than our, our perspective. I wonder, I guess, if you'd comment uh, on whether there is a, and Peter Berger famously talked about the secularizing trend in, in Europe. I wonder if you'd comment about whether there is a, a religious angle alongside of these trends. It's a complicated question, right? But a religious angle, a faith angle alongside the spikes in, in, in populism and what's uh, playing out in the successive elections that are, are just ahead. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you see a, an element there that is connected somehow to faith? I wouldn't use the word faith, regrettably. I think that there is a cultural angle in several countries to greater and lesser degrees. You know, most obviously, the most culturally conservative countries of Central Eastern Europe tend to be more Catholic and tend to have em embraced a more uh, culturally conservative politics that um, their populism is also characterized by. Poland is obviously the, the particular example of that, the most Catholic country in, in Europe. But I think that it is important to dissociate faith from a conservative cultural view that religious communities often adhere to. And I would, I would actually make the same distinction even more strongly in the US, where regrettably... The Christian right, which, as you, as you mentioned, was rock solid behind Donald Trump, he certainly wouldn't have been elected without it, has, I think, shown itself not to be driven by matters of faith to a greater extent, but rather by cultural matters that, that it associates with. I mean, the, and the, 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 the familiar obvious example is that the, the most devout American right-wing Christians tend to be the most unhappy with the particularly brutally intolerant character of the president's restrictionism on the border. And that forms a contrast with conservative Christians more, more broadly. I think they've turned out to be less faithful voters, even though they may consider themselves to be emphatically Christian voters than many of us, I suppose, hope that they were. I mean, Europe is obviously very different. One thing that is very different is that America has only now started to go through a period where secularization is uh, a mass phenomenon. That's something that happened in Europe 30 to 50 years ago because most of the changes in Europe happened via legislation. 
those battles were fought in the public square and won, but also won in a fair sense so that as uh, Christians lost many of the battles, they also won in certain compromises that are certainly not the case here. You know, like abortion is not as widely available in Germany as it is in the United States. And so there's a sense of siege here that is not present among most Christians in Europe, even as the number of Christians is dramatically lower. The, what, the irony being there being that it was the way that those decisions were decided, basically through through um, electoral politics, through democracy, rather than through by judicial fiat, that that you you got uh, a result on abortion. I'm thinking of specifically, but perhaps there are other examples that that people on both sides could live with. So abortion is widely available across. Europe, of course, but the latest term abortion, which is permissible in America, broadly speaking, is is often not available. And, and that indeed, there are strong majorities against it in many European countries. Britain is one. Yeah, much as there are strong majorities in the polls against it, but here it's not ruled by public opinion. But one thing I, I would want to mention, I, I'm, I read this in a exit poll in the Bavarian state elections. And I come back to it over and over again because it's one that I think captures something. I'm not sure exactly what it captures, but roughly translated, it asked people to agree with this statement that uh, I uh, I'm sorrowful or I regret that German culture, traditional German culture seems to be waning influence on a daily basis. 100% of the people who voted for IFD, the right-wing populist party, agreed with that statement. And then two-thirds of the CSU, the the conservative party, and 60-something percent of the free Freivaler, who has a little less conservative, and then the free Democrats, the urban center free market liberals, and then you had the SPD, and then you had the Greens. It was a perfect delineation of where the parties would stand as far as tradition and openness towards immigration, towards Europe, and so forth. And when you look at traditional German culture, that can't be completely divorced from Christianity. From the institution of Christianity, the comfortable role that it has played in people's lives. But I, right. The, I, the, I the, said, but the, I, but I didn't sto- mean faith yeah, in, in that yeah. specific way, but a general sense of Christian public order. I think the, the, the contrast with America is where I think professing to have no religious belief is now the biggest group is nonetheless profound. In the Democratic primary right now, you have a gay candidate, you have all hues of skin color candidates. You don't have an atheist candidate, to my, off the top of my head. And, And indeed, I think Bernie Sanders in 2016, who was, who was assumed as an irreligious Jew to have no religious beliefs was sort of brought to to say that actually, well, he 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 did kind of have something that was a bit like a religious belief. This is just so different from Europe, yeah. where the most you know American style, outwardly devout political leader of many many years in Britain, Tony Blair, basically you know fought hard to avoid any mention of his faith because it was it was considered to be just a little bit weird yeah. by most British voters. So I, I think that's still that that contrast still very much holds up. Yeah. And, and and by the by the by, that openly gay democratic candidate in this year's primary, we should add, is also a devout Christian. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's probably a very good note to end on. Thank you so much. This is a great entree to what will be a series of conversations leading up to November that the project has. Thanks, James. Thanks, Henry. Thank you. Thank you, both. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to subscribe, and we'd appreciate if you'd rate and review the show, which helps get the word out. Thanks for listening.